Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Have you ever used the expression, don't get your hopes up? I think I used it just the other day with one of my daughters, but I don't remember why I used it. Probably because I use it so much, I don't know. It can be a really helpful reminder. As most of us know, unrealistic expectations are a killer. There's no satisfying unrealistic expectations, right? Unrealistic expectations often result in heart sickness, just tremendous disappointment. As the Scripture says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope fulfilled makes a heart sick. And that's why the expression, don't get your hopes up, can be a helpful reminder. It can even be loving to help someone. If you see that they have unrealistic expectations, you might want to remind them not to get their hopes up. And the other day when I used this, I hope I used it in that manner. But there is another side of that coin. There are many forces in life that steal hope that beat it down, that take it away, that deflate our hopes. And this is cynicism. It can be realism taken too far. The eors of life are not right all the time. Not when you look at the Scripture. And after all, what about when a hope is built on reality? What about when it is a right and good hope? What about them? Remember this, my Christian brother and sister. And if there's any unbelievers here this morning, I'm sure there are. Think about this too. Hope has a role in life. You need hope. It's a critical, vital necessity. Hope is life. Remember what Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now... Faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the grace of these is love. So yes, the greatest of these three qualities is love. But hope is no slouch either. It's not that shabby to be listed among those three virtues that abide or remain. Hope has a powerful effect on the one who possesses it. The person with hope lasts longer, works harder, sees value in the work they're doing, perseveres, is more conscientious, can overcome more obstacles, can bear up with more burdens. They finish the course. The person with hope finishes stronger, finishes better. We could go on. The point is we need hope. And of all people on earth, Christians, those that belong to Christ Jesus, the the one who gave himself for us, the one who will return of all people on earth, Christians should possess hope because it's not a lack of reality for us or it's not an, an expectation that's exaggerated. It's a true, a real, growing, never-failing hope. And consider this. What if we, individually as a church, consider this, think of it. 
What if we grow in our hope? In other words, we could, we could grow individually, we could grow as a body in being excited about what the Lord's going to do in the future, in anticipating the deliverance He's going to give to us. If we do that, we could endure anything, anything at all, because we know that our final deliverance from every evil not just the least evil, not just the worst evil, not just some evil, but from every evil in this world. That deliverance is coming. And that deliverance is not going to come prematurely. And that deliverance is not going to come too late. What if we just had a hope that said we know it's coming and it will come at just the right time? If we have that fixed in our hearts, what kind of people would we be? Well, this is the kind of people we are. We do have that hope. And it's a growing hope. And it's the kind of people we're going to continue to grow into because our God wants to put hope into us. Let hope grow. Let it grow in us because the Lord affirms his deliverance. He affirms it. He says, listen, it's coming. Don't worry. I want you to anticipate it. I want you to remember it. I want you to have it in mind, to keep it in front of your eyes at all times. It's going to happen. Deliverance will come. So awaken that hope. Let it grow in us. The Lord's going to deliver us from every evil in this world, from every injustice, from every disappointment. Those aren't the careless words of a preacher. Those are the true realities of Christianity. From every heartbreak and every heartache, from even death itself and everything lesser than it, the Lord has delivered us and will deliver us. So we're going to take our text in three points. First, let's look at hope and doubt. Look at hope and doubt. So Isaiah chapter 51 there, we're going to get to verse 9 through 16 in just a minute. The whole text we're going to read today is broken into three sections, very neatly rather. And each section begins with awake, awake, or wake up. Each section begins with that. In these verses here, we're going to see, in verses 9 through 11 to begin with, we're going to see that expression used for the first time. And you're going to see that it's a call from God's people to God. So from the people of God to the Lord, saying, awake! They want God to wake up. They want God to deliver them. Remember, they've been through some terrible troubles, and at this moment, they're exiles in Babylon. So let me read for you Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 through 11. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of all the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This portion is really in the form of a community 
lament, these three verses. It's, 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 like, it's like the whole group of them lamenting together. Oh God, look what's happened to us. Please wake up. Please put on your strength. It's a mixture of uncertainty and doubt and hope. It's a mixture. You can see that they know God. They know that God saved before. They know that God saved in the past. And, and they know that because He did it before that He can do it again. But at the same time, they want Him to wake up now and save them now. They don't know what's taking so long, so they think they have to wake Him up. And that's the doubting side of them. That's the uncertain side. If God is so powerful to save, if we belong to Him, why doesn't He deliver us now? Is there something wrong? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he doesn't care. Does this sound familiar to you? If God has saved before, and he sees the situation I'm in now, why doesn't he save me now? Doesn't that sound like our own thoughts sometimes? When they talk about salvation in the days of old, and they talk about Rahab and the dragon, that might be a little strange. You might even think of Rahab, the harlot, from the story of, uh, of Jericho and Joshua leading the, uh, the people of Israel around Jericho and the walls coming down and Rahab and the spies and her family being saved. That might be what you think about. But they're not talking about that Rahab. And when they, but when they talk about the God saving in the days of old and Rahab and the dragon, they're talking about God's sovereign power of, over all things. God's sovereign power over all things. And, and, and so Isaiah is illustrating the power of God by using the ancient creation stories of the pagans. He's taking their stories and he's using it here and he's showing the Lord's power over all of those things. And so a loose summary of those ancient pagan creation stories is that the pagans believed in a watery chaos monster. Before anything else was made in our physical universe, there was this chaos monster, and the chaos monster is called Leviathan, or sometimes that chaos monster is called Rahab, as, as the chaos monster, as she's called here. And the chaos monster Rahab gives birth to all of the other gods, and those gods are full of drama, and the chaos monster is full of drama, and the chaos monster gets into it with the gods, and, and they're warring with each other, and the gods rearrange her. They don't so much kill her, they rearrange her. Doesn't that sound kind of like a, 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 a mob a, a description of how to deal with someone? Are you going to kill me? No, we're going to rearrange you. That's, that's what happens to the chaos monster here. And they rearrange her. And I, if I remember, I think part of her carcass becomes the universe. And that's the idea. So in Isaiah chapter 30, Egypt is likened to Rahab. We've mentioned this before. And so it's like Egypt is like the chaos monster. They're, they're thinking about this illustration and, and how powerful Egypt seems to be. Egypt is ancient power. And they seem so powerful that we're afraid of her. And, and the, Isaiah is prophesying there. He's saying, don't be afraid. She might seem like the chaos monster. That's exactly right because there is no chaos monster and it's a bunch of baloney. God is over all and so you don't have to worry. 
And what does God do? He metaphorically, in the past, He cut Egypt into pieces, delivered His people out of there, overthrows their power. He said, what are you afraid of these people for? They might look like the chaos monster, but just like the chaos monster, that power is a myth. And so Israel's saying, God, you did all this. All power is yours. We know that you've done this before. Deliver us again out of our troubles now. When we'll come, when you do that, we'll come singing into the homeland. We'll come, we'll come singing with everlasting joy and design. It's almost a, it, it, it's a, it's an eschatological picture of what the final state will be. God's people in everlasting joy being redeemed by God and delivered forever. And that's a hint, by the way, because even though we know they're exiled in Babylon, we, we see no hint. We see no, I should rather say, we do not see the word Babylon used here, right? And so we know that the Holy Spirit, <coughs> through Isaiah, it's get, he's getting to bigger things, deeper things, immaterial things, spiritual things, not just for God's people at the time, but for God's people through the ages, for God's people, ultimately. You and I can have the same tension that they faced. We know that God can save. We know that He's already saved us. Maybe long ago we came to Christ. We were baptized in the name of Jesus, just like we had some baptisms here last Sunday. We were baptized in the name of Jesus. We we came to Him. We professed Him. We followed Him. We belonged to Him. But now we find ourselves again in need of deliverance, spiritual deliverance and other forms of deliverance. And we can think like this again. God, please deliver us. We know you've delivered us before. Won't you deliver us now? Why aren't you delivering us now? Whether it's Job or David or Israel or us, God does not reveal all of his mysteries, not all at once, not to all of us, not right away. We don't know the reasons for His timing. And we cannot, we should not demand a different time frame for His deliverance. And we should not demand that His deliverance look different than the deliverance that He will provide. We have to embrace this. That God gives His deliverance in His way, in His time. We have to submit to that. We have to trust Him for it. That war that goes on in our hearts and in our minds that sometimes even accuses God. We have to lay it aside and say, God, I'm going to trust you to, to provide your deliverance in due time. And let God's Word stir up your hope a bit with this. This is always the way it is with God's people. There's always a period of waiting on the Lord, of waiting on the Lord. Remember, even in Isaiah, they that wait upon the Lord renew their strength. He wants us to wait on Him. That's even more important to Him than any trouble we may find ourselves in at a given time. Wait for His salvation. And during that time, during that time of waiting, we're always tempted to doubt His intention to save. We're always tempted to say, why, God? Why not right now? You have the power. Why aren't you acting? Why haven't you changed my situation yet? 
But it's always the way it is with God's people. And that's something for us to think about. You see, we want deliverance sooner than it comes, right? Think about it. We want deliverance before we experience any consequence, any discomfort. We want deliverance before we experience any inconvenience. We don't even want to know that we needed deliverance, right? We love the Scripture that tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's like, I didn't even know I needed the Savior, and He provided salvation. Yes, it's true. It's, we, the deliverance we've received goes far beyond our understanding of how much we needed to be delivered from. And that might be one reason why God wants to teach us how much we've been delivered from. And so He causes us to wait. To wait for just the right time for His salvation. And that's probably one of the biggest reasons that God works in this way. The Lord is committed to teaching us that we need salvation. I just read a story about a good church woman who asked her friend why it felt like her experience of grace was so faint. She said to her friend, why is my experience of grace, why does it feel like I, I don't feel grace? I don't, I don't, it's like I, I don't experience it. And her friend asked her, when she first understand, when did you first understand that you were lost? And this woman retorted, I have never been lost. I have known God all my life. I had known God from my childhood. Remember what Jesus taught. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Grace comes to those who understand that they need to be saved, that they're not entitled to God's grace, but that His grace is a free gift. Do you want to know some amazing news, some truly great news? God is so committed to His people, to His children, that He's not going to let us miss that point. He's going to make sure we understand how much we need His salvation. Verses 12 to 16 give us the Lord's answer and how reassuring this answer is. Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 51, verses 12 to 16. God says through the prophet Isaiah, I, I am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the Son of Man who is made like grass? And have you forgotten the Lord, your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy? And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking." I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, You are my people. What reassurance. What reassurance. Let hope grow. Because the Lord affirms His deliverance. He affirms it. Let your hope grow. Let it be stirred up. Let's look at our second point of affirmation of hope. Number two, affirmation of hope. 
Now, whenever there's any kind of dispute or conflict between people, when you seek to resolve it, one of the most helpful practices is to take the time to communicate understanding of the other party's perspective. It just goes a long way to know that the other person knows where you're coming from. And we're going to see that in verses 17 to 20, that God knows their perspective. God knows their situation. And just before I read this, notice that the section begins with the second, wake up. It's the second, wake up. Gee, I said that and a bunch of people looked up at me. I wasn't telling you to wake up. I was saying that's what God's saying to them. Well, I'm glad to see that. That's, that's good to see. This time, it's not Israel, God's people, calling on God to wake up. Instead, it's God calling His people to wake up. God's calling His people to wake up. Now, isn't that interesting? Think of it. They want God to wake up. They're saying, God, you wake up. And you know what? He's saying, you know what? I'm not the one asleep. You are. I'm not the one who's lacking perception in the moment or awareness. You are. You're the one who needs to wake up and open your eyes and see what's really really going on and see the deliverance I have provided. How true, how true. Look at Isaiah chapter 51, verses 17 through 20. No, uh, ch- uh, 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering There is none to guide her. Among all the sons she is born, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she is brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So this here is primarily a picture of what has happened to Israel. Israel's like a a mother of many sons, but she's become drunk to the point of stumbling. But she's not drunk on wine. She's drunk on the wrath of God for her many sins. She's received the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath has been poured out on her, in her, because of her many sins. We've read this over and over again in Isaiah. And because of her drunkenness and the wrath of God, she's so disoriented and she's so weak, she she can't even really stand. She's stumbling. She's falling against the wall. She's reaching out for help. And maybe one of her sons will take her by the hand and say, come on, Mom, let's go home. And take her by the hand and, and lead her. But guess what? Because of their sin, because of the cup of God's wrath, none of her sons are standing either. All of their strength has been taken away. They have fallen under God's wrath because of their many sins and they've come to devastation. Israel and her sons have been rebuked by God. And that is, when we sin, when we remain in sin, sin, when we persist in sin, when we refuse to repent of sin, when we refuse to turn from sin, this is what we should expect rebuke from God, disorientation and staggering. That's the truth. That's the real picture. God knows Israel's story better than anyone knows their story. 
He knows their story precisely. And you know what? God knows your true story. He knows it all. None of it's hidden from Him. Not a bit of it. All of it's known to Him. And that can be very frightening, can't it? Because only you and God know the extent of your sin. God knows it even better than you. Idolatry, immorality, greed, oppression of the poor, lies and dishonesty, injustice, manipulation, busybodiness, sins of the tongue. You know, the Israelites really not better than any other people. And we may even feel like when we read at points, we may feel like, you know, do they even deserve this? Or we may feel like, depending on the part of the Bible we're reading, we may think, yeah, they do deserve it. But that's just it. Just like Israel, we do deserve our troubles. Now, don't misunderstand I'm not saying that someone who mistreats you, or if you mistreat someone, I'm not saying that that's right and good. I'm saying it's wrong. But what I am saying is that given our own rebellion against the Lord, none of us deserves His deliverance. But look how the Lord, even though He knows their situation and has has had them drink of His wrath for their many sins. Look how He reaffirms His deliverance of His people. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 21 to 23, 21 to 23, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of His people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over you. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. You see, you see what he's saying here? God is going to punish those that have punished Israel. Yes, God used the Assyrians. He used other nations. He used the Babylonians to, to, to be the means of His wrath upon His people. And, and they experienced terrible troubles. But God is now going to He's going to deliver them. He's going to take the cup out of their hand. Think of Lady Israel. Take it out of her hand, Mother Israel. And He's going to refill it with His wrath and give it to their oppressors. He's saying, I used you oppressors. I used you Babylon. I used you Assyria. I used others to punish my people, to bring consequence to them, to train them in the way they should go, to help them understand they need my deliverance and they should be oriented to me. But that doesn't mean that you're off scot-free. Now I will punish you for loving the violence you poured out on my people. 
Now, if you're here today and you do not believe, but you think that God is some unnecessary crutch, just keep this in mind. The only way there will ever be true, full, real justice in this world is if God sits on the throne and is the one true judge. It's the only way. Anything less than that means that most of the evil that happens in the world, those that commit that evil, they get away with it. That's what that means if God is not the judge. Consider one simple, clear example. Should Adolf Hitler have been allowed to take his own life? I mean, really, for him, wasn't that kind of the easy way out for such a despicable, unworthy of life? If everyone agrees that this man was completely unworthy of life. And it seems too easy, doesn't it? For him to have been able to take his own life, can we see that doesn't, that doesn't really pay for the humiliation, the horrors, the torments he inflicted for decades on millions? And that's the extent of it? He just takes his own life? You see, there has to be a judge to bring justice so that all of the wrongs that have ever happened in the history of humanity can be made right. Without that, there is no morality and there is no purpose in life. And anything evil that's happened to you and anything evil that you've done goes without justice, which is the greatest injustice of all. Note, there is a judge, and knowing that alone stirs hope that there will be justice. So the oppressors of Israel, were they holy before God? No. Did they do right before the Lord? No. They reveled in their oppression of God's people. And God says, nope, at the right time, I'm going to deliver my people and you're going to pay the penalty for doing that. And that's going to happen in this world. And it's happening even now. Because God is always pouring out His cup of wrath on the sins of the world. But before we move on, we have to remember that Jesus referred to His crucifixion in the same way. He referred to His crucifixion and His death as a cup. Remember that? As a cup. So when He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Mark 14 tells us, uh, this has stopped working. If I could have a little help. Seth Pawson, people. Thank you, Seth. Oh, no, no, who is that? Oh, Easton Her, everyone. So, yeah, we need some justice. Take away the clapping from Seth and give it to Easton. Here we go, there we go. Thank you, Easton. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What was the cup? It's the same as we see here. It's God's wrath poured out. The cup of God's wrath for many sins. Whose many sins? Jesus' many sins? Did Jesus sin at all? No. Was Jesus to stumble about for His own sins? No, of course not. He stumbles for our sins. Think of it. God says to Israel, I'm going to take the cup away from you. 
You've emptied it. You drank it as I intended. But I'm going to take it now. I'm going to refill it. I'm going to give it to your oppressors. Now they're going to face my wrath. He takes the cup away from them. He refills it, gives it to another group that deserves it. They're oppressors. But here, with us, at the cross, God has filled up a cup for us of His wrath. And He gives it to us. And we should drink it. We should drink it through our whole lives. We should drink it till it's done. We should drink it to our, we are dead, not just dead in this life, but dead in the life to come. And God takes that cup, that full cup, before it's been drunk, and He doesn't refill it. And He hands it to His Son in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, here we go. And Jesus says, would you take this cup? And the Father is silent. So Jesus takes the cup and he starts to drink. And he carries his cross to Calvary. And he's crucified there. And he dies. And he's buried. Let hope grow because the Lord affirms His deliverance. Let me give our third point here, a hopeful heart. A hopeful heart. This next portion begins with the third, awake. It's the third awake. It is the Lord again calling to His people. Remember the first time they called out to God to awake. Remember, right? But He's calling to them, wake up, wake up. We are the ones, my friends, we are the ones that need to wake up. God's awake. He's he's not sleeping. He's not slow. When you feel like, what's taking so long? Why doesn't he save? He's completely active. We need to open our eyes to what's going on. And you know, the Israelites were right to look back and see God's deliverance from Egypt and to take hope in it and other times because we're going to see the Lord reminding them of that right here. So Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 6. Let me read for you verses 1 through 6. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. And one of the interesting notes in this passage is that some of this language is used in reverse form a few chapters before. So when God is promising to Israel, because he's been promising deliverance to them, he's been telling them it's going to come. And when he promised them before that he was going to deliver them from Babylon, he also warned Babylon 
what was about to happen to them. It was their chance to repent. He warns them about what he's going to do to them. So in Isaiah chapter 47, he says things like, to Babylon, he says things like, sit in the dust and sit on the ground without a throne and strip off your robe, uncover your legs. But here he's saying to his people, put on your strength and put on your beautiful garments and shake yourself from the dust and arise. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some of my glory. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to make you, I'm going to ennoble you. I'm going to stand you back up. I'm going to give you dignity and strength. That's part of his deliverance. We're down in the dust. He brings us up. We get a picture of a destitute people who are so despairing that they sit in the dust and make no future plans. They don't even have hope for a future. They are pitiful. Maybe they're self-pitiful. Maybe that's the way they approach their situation. The Lord is saying to them, hear me, hear me, dear friends. The Lord is saying to them, no, don't think like that. Don't be like that anymore. Rise up. Walk in the honor of the Lord. You are my people. Take off your chains. Take them off and show forth my glory in this world. Did you know that? You and I are are called to shine forth the glory of God. Awfully hard to do that when we're always despairing, when we're always self-pitiful, when we walk with a shadow and a cloud over us. Awfully hard to show forth God's glory. When we're not walking in the joy and the knowledge of the hope of the deliverance that's going to come to us, that's already come to us, that's going to come to us. Some of us want to shine forth Christ more. We look for opportunities to witness and we wonder, why hasn't it happened? Are you living in the joy and the knowledge of the deliverance that you have experienced and will experience? God is saying to you, shake off your chains. Wipe off the dust. Put on the clothes of righteousness. Walk before me and shine like lights in this world. Oh, we have hope. We have joy unspeakable. We we have every reason to have everlasting joy. It should shine forth. It should emanate from Crossway Church. Like one of our greatest beacons and virtues because of the hope we have in Christ Jesus. He is promising to deliver them. God's promising to deliver them. And He wants them to act accordingly. How much more should we act accordingly? We have been delivered. And though there is more deliverance to come, when we see the face of our Lord returning in the clouds, we already have, we already have, we already have victory over death, victory over sin. Where's the sting of death? If you know you will live forever. That's why Christians say our brother or sister passed away or they're sleeping. You know, it's not as final. We're not not denying reality. We're not living in denial. We're living in reality that for the Christian, death is not the end. It's the beginning of the full, the fulfillment of all of God's deliverance. 
And so where's the sting of death? Where's the sting of sin? We already have victory over sin. We don't have to be enslaved to sin. We're going to put it off. Let's wake up. Let's rise up. Let's fill our hearts with the promise of the coming glory of God and of ultimate deliverance. This last portion I'm going to read to us today, it gives us, I believe, a picture of what a hopeful heart looks like. I want to stir up hope. Want us to have hopeful hearts. God wants that for us. Now, the picture here is that of a besieged city. So you can think of the church. You can think of ourselves. Isaiah is using it metaphorically for Israel at the time, and we can use it metaphorically for ourselves individually, as families, as a church. A besieged city. And let me read it for you Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 12. Isaiah 52, verse 7. And I'll read from from there. How, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. You may remember the story of King David when his son Absalom rebelled against him, raised up an army, drove him out of Jerusalem, and took the throne of Israel. And so when Absalom and David's armies met in battle, David is in some smaller city and he's waiting at the gates and the watchmen of that city are, they're looking out for a messenger. They're waiting for word. Can you imagine they're on the verge of, of, of knowing whether they're going to be completely destroyed and whether they shall run for their lives or whether they're, they're going to retake the throne in Jerusalem. This battle... It's, it's, for, it's for everything. And so David's sitting by the gates. The watchman's up on the wall. And he looks and, and doesn't see anything. Looks as far out as he can. Do you, see any, and, do you see anything yet? No, I don't see anything. Finally, the watchman says, I see it. I see someone. I see one man. I see him alone. And David says, oh. Okay, that means that if he's, if he's alone, that means there's news. Because it's not a platoon, it's not a battalion, it's not a legion, right? It's, it's just one soldier running. He must then be coming back to give us news. And as the, as the messenger came closer, the watchman called down to David. I forget, the, I forget the man's name, but he says his running is as a certain one. 
It says a certain one. In other words, uh, the, the, the watchman was familiar enough with this soldier that he knew what he looked like when he ran. And when David heard the name, he said, oh, oh, he's a good man. He comes with good news. He comes with good news. So far off, before the word even comes to David, because of the messenger, because of the appearance of the running, because of the character of the man, because, because of that, they have an idea of the message that he's going to bring. He's going to bring news. He's going to bring good news. And sure enough, the news is good. That's a story for another day. Now think of this picture of a besieged city. They're besieged. There's, there's no hope within the city that there's enough strength there to defend the city against the invaders. They're going to take the city. It's just a matter of time. The only hope they have is if salvation comes from outside the city to them. And so the watchmen are up on the walls and they're looking out. They're looking out for, for news. News, what's going to happen? Will we get reinforcements? And they want desperately to hear good news. And all of a sudden they see it. A single messenger. And they know from the running of the messenger that he brings good news. You know, Jerusalem was was up on a mountain, but it was surrounded by mountains. And that's why they'd, they'd look up. How, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Isaiah is doing that right now. He's bringing the good news to them. And you know what? He's actually bringing it to us too. Others would come, other prophets would come and bring the good news of God's coming salvation. John the Baptist would come and bring the news of God's salvation. And that message was, God will send His one and only Son to die for sinners like us. And then take up His life so that we can in Him have life. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.